0: plus oh thank you so much that means the world i really appreciate this guys and it's and it's it's barry
1: yeah like a long island dentist like a <laughs> not like the fancy city in italy but here's the thing
0: there's no girl that's barry barry. white
1: no my name is literally barry white i mean that's who i am
0: <laughs> so yes, you're the jewish barry white that's it that's it Yeah, this is great
1: we got it together, didn't we? Nobody but you. This is honestly And, me. and I am Barry White. My last everything. Just kidding. it's just me, Barry Weiss. And today we have something a little bit different. Before I go on, a quick warning to listeners. My guest today, the comedian Andrew Schultz, plays blue. In other words, there are some F-bombs in here and some jokes you probably wouldn't want your kids to hear. So if you're in the car and you want to protect their ears, maybe press pause for now. Sorry about that, Dad. So in many ways, Andrew Schultz came up through the tried-and-true methods that comedians always have—comedy clubs, touring, hoping to get the attention of execs at a TV network— The difference is that as an up-and-comer in the early 2000s, he had something that earlier comics didn't. And that thing is the internet. Schultz started self-publishing his specials on YouTube. And in 2018, one of them went to number one across Apple Music, Google Play, Amazon, and it also topped the Billboard comedy album charts.
0: Man, I need a neck tattoo. (laughs) Hear me out. Here's the thing. I feel like if, if you have neck tattoos... You could you could put your thumb in a girl's butt, and she won't be like
1: surprised. (laughs) You know what I'm saying?
0: Like, look at my haircut. If I do that, they're surprised. But if you had a neck tattoo, you could just be like, boom, and she goes, "What the fuck?" And you go, "I don't really think about what I do."
1: At this point, Andrew is an established comedy star. He's got a Netflix special, and he's got sold-out tours to show for it. But now, this week, he's making headlines for a different reason. Andrew, thanks for being here.
0: Thank you for having me, Barry White.
1: Nice. Okay, for those who don't know you, in addition to being a comedian, you're also a podcast host, you're a YouTuber, you have 2 million subscribers on that platform. And in 2020, you had a special on Netflix titled Schultz Saves America. Yes. That's how I found out about you. I thought it was amazing. Oh, Just thank you. joke, 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 joke. And I was excited because I heard you were about to publish another special on another big streamer, but that's not happening now. That is correct. Here's what happened the streamer gave you an ultimatum. They said, remove these jokes or we're not going to air it. Most comedians would probably say, I'm going to take the check. I'm going to do what they say. But you said, nah. And then you spent, according to Twitter, your life savings to buy it back. And now in a very middle finger to the man kind of move, you are actually self-publishing the special, totally uncensored, and available on your website, theandrewschultz, S-C-H-U-L-Z.com. Now, did I get that right?
0: that was amazing. That was like the movie guy in a world. Like, I felt like a hero in this story.
1: I mean, maybe you are, maybe you aren't. Let's That's see. True. Let's That's see where true. it goes. We have more
0: questions, right?
1: Okay. So I want to talk to you today about the importance of comedy and the place that it holds in a society like ours that at least ostensibly champions free expression. But I have to start with mm-hmm. the most obvious question, which is who is the streamer?
0: Ah, I don't, I'm not saying the, I'm not saying who the streamer is. And, um, that's because I don't really have a problem with streamers. And I actually really like the exec over there who, who, who gave me the opportunity originally. And he really fought for me and I think he's a good guy and I don't want him to get any, any backlash because he really did fight, but there were certain people above him. Everybody got a boss and, um, and you know, I think culture changed the climate change. They got a little bit worried. And um, and they were like, now nah, we can't take this risk.
1: Well, so what were they worried about? What what were the jokes that were like
0: too controversial? There was a few different jokes. I have a, yeah, I got like, I have like a Ted Bundy kind of serial killer documentary show. You know, my wife is really into this serial killer documentary stuff as most uh, uh, women seem to be. And uh, so I have a, just kind of like a bit about that. And then there's another Michael Jackson joke I have. And then uh, there's, a, there's an abortion tag. I just want to let y'all know right now, ladies, uh, I am with you. I think it's your body, your choice. I agree with you on that, 100%. I agree with you. When you say that men should have no say in the decisions you make with your bodies, those are your decisions to make and yours alone. And I feel that way because uh, at the end of the day, when we all go up to heaven and God's like, why are we all killing babies? We're going to be like, y'all. <laughs> I think they were very clear whose decision this was, God. Uh, <laughs> looks like you need to pay for your sins, babe. <laughs> Even though I paid for your sins. There's a when, bunch. I mean, there was a bunch of lines, to be honest with you. There, there's yeah. But those are the main ones that they objected against.
1: So let's talk about what actually happened. H- here's what I mean. Yeah. A special isn't a surprise. Yeah. Right? A comedian is out on the road, often night after night working the material that's going into a special for months, refining them. People are seeing them all over the country. And if you're getting to the stage where a streamer is buying your special, many things have already happened. Yes, They've seen the material, they've seen the show, you've signed a contract. They thought that it was funny enough to pay for. So tell me what happened. Did they get cold feet with what they bought or did you surprise them with new material?
0: No, they saw it. They knew exactly what they were getting and they saw the jokes and uh, culture change. I, I mean, honestly, I think what it was is is like the whole trans stuff with Chappelle, the backlash from that, I think, just kind of like freaked them out. And, uh, you know, they had to make a decision. And uh, that was a decision. To me, and and look, at the same time, I have, like, empathy, okay? Like, I want to sit here and be like, rah, 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 comedy, and nothing is more important than comedy, but there are plenty of things that are more important than comedy. Like, if you're an executive, your kid's going to fucking private school and having to pay for that every year and having a fucking pool in your house or whatever the hell you want. Like, my passion's comedy. Your passion is building a, you know, film department or whatever the hell it is for this company you work for. So... I'm not saying that you should go down. Like, I have projects with pretty much every streamer. But for me personally, I didn't come up through streamers putting out my comedy. I came up by putting my comedy out on YouTube and putting my comedy out on Instagram. I I basically wasn't given these uh, traditional opportunities in the stand-up world, so I started putting out specials on YouTube and Instagram, and that kind of transformed the way that comics, you know, put out material now. You know, you see a lot of comics have incredible success on YouTube and Instagram because they're just better platforms for putting out your content and gaining new fans. And my feeling was I never had anybody giving me notes. I never watered down a single thing. So that really worked for me. I built up a fan base and I built up people who support me and I built that off of authenticity and like building my, being myself and these people going, oh, wow, this guy's unique and he has original takes and he's actually being himself. And he's not worried about Stupid network notes, like you can't punch down or whatever the fuck they say, and basically I'm like, I'm not gonna water it down now that I get this opportunity, because mm-hmm. why would I change something that's worked? So well, I'm, the, I'm like, well, I, I'm not gonna do it, guys. Sorry. Well,
1: this is this is something I've been thinking about a lot, which is, you know, do the platforms need the talent, or do the talents need the platforms?
0: I mean, it depends. Like Originally, the talent needed the platforms, right? There was a time with Netflix where basically anybody who did a special on Netflix became a superstar, it felt like. And basically what happened was, I think at that point in time, if you were smart, you would do a special for free on Netflix because they had the people and they had the ability of sharing it with the world. And I think that Netflix has kind of miscalculated the way that they developed their streaming service. And I think they made some strategic mistakes along the way in terms of like what people need from a streaming service. And, um, what do you mean? A streaming service, uh, it's not that difficult. What you need is like um, secondhand viewing. You need essentially like what I call laundry television. So the television that's on in the background while you're doing laundry or activities, right? Like so how for example, I watch
1: Veep. I watch like Veep for the fifth time ever.
0: Exactly. My wife watches... Uh, Harry Potter, which is probably where Fetus Deletus comes from and all of my fucking Harry Potter references because we go to sleep every single night to one of the (laughs) seven Harry Potter movies and she's out like a light two minutes of Harry Potter. She's gone and uh, she actually has like a nuanced take on why it's good. It's like filmed dark. So it's easier to sleep to, whereas, like, bright things are kind of hard. I thought that was pretty good. Uh, I thought it was a pretty good bullshit excuse to make me watch fucking <laughs> The Sorcerer's Stone or whatever for the hundredth time. But anyway. Uh, so, yeah. So you need the, the laundry viewing, right? Um And laundry viewing are like all the MTV shows I used to do. Like they don't need a start or an end. You could pop in at any time. You just have it on to have some company while you're either going to sleep, you're doing your chores, they're just there. And I think with Netflix, that was The Office and that was Friends. And that were these like iconic shows that were just comfort television, right? And, um, they let those go. And I think the idea was, well, we're just going to develop our own. And like, those are unicorns. Those are unicorn shows. It's very hard to make a veep. It's very hard to make a friends, very hard to make an office. It's very hard to, to do that for seven seasons. So you need those because that's what I watch for comfort. And then you need a scripted show, at least one that I need to know what's going to happen next year. And, Netflix, I don't think has done that well in the scripted department. You look at a, a network like Disney, you look at a network like HBO, like HBO is absolutely masterful at scripted. Like it's not even close. There's no competition. Like, yeah. Like they came out of the streaming game last. They, <laughs> they sat around and they can because they make shows like Euphoria, which make you go, Wow. That was incredible filmmaking. I need to know what's going to happen next year. They take time and develop. They scrap a show that they spent millions of dollars on just because it's not good enough. They really care about the product they're delivering. People, and um, and yeah, it's just they just they're just profound when it comes to scripted. And then they have to buy up enough. I think maybe they own the Simpsons or something like that. Yeah. You know, Disney has the Marvel stuff. Like you just need enough popcorn. You need enough uh, second viewing.
1: Okay. Well, now that we're on Netflix, you know. Let's talk about Chappelle for a second and the lessons from Chappelle because you're saying that the message that a lot of executives at streamers or networks took from the Chappelle controversy was this. If I want to keep my fancy stuff and my reputation and my well-paid job, I got to steer clear of drama like that. But I wonder if you couldn't actually take the opposite lesson, the opposite point of view. In other words, Dave Chappelle's special was the biggest and most-watched comedy special of the last year. Yeah. It was a top performer on the platform. It was beloved by millions of his fans. It was nominated for Emmys. So couldn't an executive look at that and say, hey, like, this worked. This was actually a net positive for Netflix.
0: I don't I don't know. You know, I can't exactly speak to that for everybody. But uh, I think at the certain times, like, you know, maybe I'm just not worth the risk. Maybe another network is like, I don't know if they have enough value. It just—it really depends— on, on the risk. Like for example, Joe Rogan is worth the risk. He's worth all the backlash. It's the biggest podcast on the fucking planet and he's the best to ever do it. So it doesn't matter what people say because it's worth it. And I think that you need to make a calculation and be like, is this worth the amount of backlash? And I guess the decision that they made was that I'm not. And what I think is I am. So what I go do is I go put out myself and the gamble that I'm basically taking is deciding how much I'm worth. I think a lot of motherfuckers don't want to know how much they're worth because they're going to be upset at the number. And that's the scary thing, really, when you think about this. It's like, it's easy when you're like an industry insider and you get like the cushy opportunities and shit, but you don't really have a fan base. So you don't know how many people actually like you. You don't know how many people actually are going to be upset if you're kicked off a show. Like Roseanne found out how much people like her. You know what I mean? Like there were ratings before when she was on the show and there were ratings when she wasn't. So she was worth 5 million people or 2 million people. She knows how many people just watch for her, you know? And um, that's the risk. And low-key, I'm, I'm cool with that. So, Andrew, so,
1: so what are you worth? You said you spent your life savings buying back this special. How much was it?
0: I'm, I was a little hyperbolic, but, like, I spent, put it this way, between what I spent and what I sacrificed, like, what I was still owed, it was, uh, it was millions of dollars. More than ten? No, not close to ten.
1: Okay, how but much more have than you-
0: one in less than ten? How about that?
1: Okay, and how much have you made so far with pre-orders?
0: Um, I don't, t- I don't want to talk about any of those kind of numbers because the job's not done. You know, R. I. P. Kobe, but that's the mentality. It's like it's time to cook and it's time to it's time to work. But it's it is interesting I've found about like journalism is people just print shit like. They, don't, they say they call you, they say they reach out. I don't know who they're reaching out to, but uh, nobody, nobody's reaching out direct to me to get the exact numbers, but they're printing numbers. But um, we're doing well. People have, have supported and, um, and that's awesome, but we still need people to, to continue to support because at least for me, it's like, if this is successful, I think the long version of this is there's no more notes on standup because if we can make more money on our own than we can with the streamers they have to compete with us to get our content and if they have to compete with us they can't tell us what to censor you know what i'm saying so like that is at least like when i started this whole fucking social media like youtube like stand-up game the idea was like i want to be able to put my content out to the people in the exact way that i want to put it out right And I understood that these like networks were a little bit trepidatious because they see this fucking white guy on stage, you know, that's making fun of everybody and taking these crazy points of view. And it's terrifying for them, especially in this era of like uh, sensitivity you know? And sensitive, I'm not saying sensitivity is necessarily bad. Like, I think people are almost well-intentioned. They're worried. They're concerned about people. But I oftentimes think it's people who never grew up with any other groups that are having this, like, ultra-sensitivity. Like, if you have a pretty diverse upbringing, like, you don't think you're punching down on anybody. I don't think anybody's worse than me. I don't think anybody's better. So, like, in my mind, everybody could get these jokes. It's that simple. And I think what ended up happening because of it is, like, you know, people saw when I was making fun of them and making fun of different cultures or different ideas, like in a weird way, they felt represented, you know? And I think at the end of the day, they're like, oh, that's cool that that guy kind of knew something unique about my culture. And, uh, he didn't just make this simple hacky joke about it. He actually, he must have like a friend that, you know, told him that. And I feel kind of represented in a different way than I usually am. And that's pretty cool. And then once you know that, That doesn't come from a negative place. Once you know that the joke in a weird way comes from like either curiosity or appreciation or like even love, now now you want to be made fun of because you want to feel that again. You want to see an observation about like how you grew up and who you are and what your culture is that you might not have even thought of. And so that's worked out for me. And I don't want to change that because some executives are concerned.
1: One of my favorite comedians is Tim Dillon.
0: Oh, Tim is great. Shouts to Tim, So
1: Tim roasts me all the time, but as far as I know, Tim has not had a special on any platform. I discovered him on Rogan and then basically have watched most of his podcasts on YouTube, laughed hysterically. And I went to see him in LA the other night and he was up there on stage with people like Chris Rock and Kevin Hart and, you know, it was incredible. But if you ask my parents, they've never heard of Tim Dillon, you know, but is something like that path, you know, just sort of like bootstrapping it kind of in the way you did. Do you think that that's kind of the future
0: of comedy? I think that's the future of content. Like, I think the future of content, one is ownership, not censorship. Like, I think that everybody, if you have the opportunity to own your stuff, you're going to do it just plain and simple. But like, I think that they're just way more famous people now and they're just less famous but they're famous within their bubble. Like the algorithm creates your world. Like somebody's going to see you on the street and they're going to be like, holy shit, that's Barry fucking Weiss. What the fuck? And then their friend right next to them is going to go, who? Right. Like that's happened to me where somebody is like shaking because they met me and their friend is like, who the fuck is this guy that's making you nervous? And we just live in this world where our algorithms decide what we like and curate what we digest. And they put these people and these figures into our world. And then because that's the only thing we're looking at, they seem larger than life. And it's awesome because a guy like me, who would have no chance to break out back in the day without the industry's help, can, you know, I, I'm a New Yorker. I sold out two shows at fucking Radio City Music Hall. Like that's unbelievable without having a, a standup special, just putting clips online, you know? And like, that to me is awesome. I love this. And the reality is I don't need every person in the world to like me. I don't care for that. I don't need to go to the fucking cool parties in LA. I don't need to go to the fucking cool parties in New York, frankly. Like- What makes you immune to wanting to be at the cool parties? I just, I mean, I, you know, I shout to my, my, uh, my podcast partner and my, just my brother, like Charlemagne said earlier in his career, he just said this to me said, you can be a man of the industry or a man of the people, but you can't be both.
1: But Charlemagne the God said that to you.
0: Yep. And, uh, I just thought about it a lot and I was like, well, I'd rather be a man of the people. Like I don't, I don't need fucking Alec Baldwin to know who I am. Like I need the guy, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like when I go do a movie, if none of the actors know who I am, but every like, key grip, electrician, you know what I mean? If every, the guy doing like crafty, the if normals. all of them- The normal, Yes, that's who I care about. Those are my people, that's it. I fuck with them, I speak to them. When I write jokes, it's for them and it's for this group experience. And that means the fucking world to me. And I don't need the validation of a network. I don't need the validation. I need the validation of the people and the people I respect.
1: Okay. So let's talk about that divide, the choice. I love that. The choice between being a man of the industry versus a man of the people. So I see that divide sort of between normie taste and elite taste most potently on Rotten Tomatoes. (laughs) So if you look on Rotten Tomatoes and you look at Chappelle and you look at his special sticks and stones. It got a critics score of 35% and an yeah. audience score of 99%. And it was almost the same chasm for the closer. What do you make of this divide between the taste of the people that are supposed to be the taste makers and where normal people actually are? You can't fire
0: an audience. You can fire a reviewer. You know, like that, that reviewer, that's their job. So if they like something that is quote unquote bigoted or whatever, they can be labeled a bigot. And now you're radioactive. And now, oh, of course the bigot would like that thing. You know, like, I'll be honest, even with me, like I have to be very careful uh, on the platforms I even go on because I know people will try to mascot me. They'll try to use me and make me their guy. I'm nobody's guy. Well, hold on. I'm the people's guy. Explain that to me
1: because you just said you're, you know, you're the guy of the, of the guy working the craft services table. You're the guy no, no,
0: of the guy I, I, doing I, the grip. What what I mean is like, I'm the people's guy. And wh- uh, like a, a cool thing that I kind of like is nobody really knows where I am politically. Like I even, I put out a fucking abortion joke and both sides feel represented in the joke. Like it's, it's kind of a crazy thing because it's like, I'm being censored, so the right wants to fight for me being censored, but it's also a joke about abortion. So now they got to defend a joke about this thing that they vehemently disagree with. And then in the joke, you don't even really know where I stand on it. It's kind of like the story allows everybody kind of to be heard. You know, I don't like dissecting like the point of my comedy too much, like go take it however you want to take it. And that's fine with me. But like, well, let me give you an example.
1: Okay. Roxane Gay.
0: I don't know who she is. Who is she? What is her thesis? What is she promoting? What is she, what are her ideas?
1: This quote will give you a a good sense of her worldview. Mm -hmm. This is what she wrote about Chappelle's special, The Closer. She said, it was a joyless tirade of incoherent and seething rage, misogyny, homophobia, and transphobia. That doesn't just strike me as like a difference in taste. That strikes me as trying to like smear a certain kind of Comedian and a certain kind of joke about a certain kind of subject.
0: Yeah, it's almost like you're viewing somebody as an enemy instead of just a piece of art.
1: And that seems to be the play so often when someone who's writing for one of these legacy publications is encountering something that makes them a little uncomfortable. The move isn't to say, hey, this is me criticizing it on the merit. The move seems to be, let me throw at this any accusations of sort of phobia that I can reach for?
0: Yeah, it's like, how do I make you radioactive? Because if I can make you radioactive then nobody has to listen to you. And that's what they try to do is like, they just silence you by making you a weirdo or making you a bigot, right? And the left does it as well. Like when I was growing up, you just silenced everybody who was conservative by just calling them racist. So it's like, and that's just our version. There's like, oh yeah, that person's racist. Yeah, yeah, all people with the Southern accent are racist. You know, and it's like, so every side does it and it's just our way of dismissing people entirely. And we just label them as the worst possible thing that we see in the world. And now I don't have to listen to a single thing that they say. And uh, yeah, it sucks when both sides do it, but it's just lazy, it's just lazy arguing. You could not like something, You could, you could hate something. You could not think it's clever, sure. You can write all that you know, I also think that people at the end of the day, they want their clicks, you know, and they want to feed their audience. They know what their audience likes. Her audience Mm -hmm. is probably going to like her trashing that guy or trashing Chappelle. So the other
1: thing I think a lot about is right. The people that are running these streamers, the suits, what are they reading? They're reading the New York times. What are they reading? They're reading Roxanne's Gay's review of Chappelle. So my concern is like that the person with that point of view has the ear of the streamers. So, you know, Tim Dillon might have millions of views. You might have millions of views. But I guess the question is, like, where does power actually lie? Does power lie with having, you know, the people working behind a bar loving you? Or does power come, you mentioned Alec Baldwin, which I think is hilarious, from having people like Alec Baldwin or people that read the Times liking you?
0: Where's real power? What's power to you? Well, power to me is the ability to do what I want when I want to do it and how I want to do it, you know? So that's in my life. Like I saw at least in standup coming up, like I, I saw the way people were trying to get like specials and stuff. And they're like schmoozing at these like comedy festivals with these execs and like drinking with them and like kissing their ass and shit. And I'm like, fuck this, this sucks. I don't want to beg every year for an opportunity for something like, I just seemed like the worst possible way to make a living. Like there's just no control of your life. How could you have, how could you be calm? How could you not be just riddled with anxiety? So in order to be honest in your creativity, you need to have control of your life. If you're not in control of your life, you can't be honest creatively because you have to create what the people that, create your, what, what pay for your life wants you to create essentially. So for me, it's just like, I want to put out the exact content that I want to put out and ideally gain fans and supporters of that content. And therefore I can continue putting out that content because they're willing to support it financially. To me, that is power. And that's, it's really freedom, but freedom is power. Let's talk about the state of comedy. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Barry, you never said what power was for you.
1: I think power is about the ability to control your destiny and that even if a group of hall monitors in a prestigious institution or a group of scolds on Twitter try and make you problematic in their language or try and make you radioactive, power is the ability to say, it doesn't matter. I can make my own way. I can speak the truth. I will be able to provide Maybe even more for my family than if I was inside that in group or at that cocktail party or inside that institution. That to me is power. Without me feeling that it will be my end.
0: Mm, I yeah, that's great. I agree with you completely.
1: So when I look at Tim Dillon, who you know, I just think is like one of the funniest people in the world. What's amazing to me about Tim Dillon isn't the fact that he gets like a great blurb from another fancy person. It's that I watched him get up on stage after all of these comedy greats and absolutely kill and, you know, brought my friends to see his show who had never heard of him and they walked out like super fans. So I think we're in this really interesting in-between state where a lot of people are untethered from these institutions and places and authorities that seemed really authoritative and prestigious and shiny. And now they're sort of moving and they're looking toward a wild west where new people are doing new things. And those places don't yet have the same shine. What I do think they have increasingly is the the masses. So if you look at like, you know, Joe Rogan's the ultimate example of that and looking at his numbers and, and his following versus what you see on in a whole week on MSNBC.
0: Yeah, I think like, I think we've always like overappreciated the shine that a network could give us. T- to be completely honest with you, I never really cared about the network name. Like everything I was doing was basically trying to curate independence. Oh, if I'm on these shows, mm. I could build up a following on Twitter or Instagram or YouTube. How can I have direct connection to the people? And the model before was you had a middleman. The middleman was TV. And now we have the opportunity not to have a middleman, but I think some people, at least boomers, the kids don't care, but, you know, the boomers, people who are our age and older, they value the name. They value the stamp, the oh, ABC, NBC, New York Times, uh, you know, Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, like they feel as if they're qualified because people like that. Once you've experienced millions of views, you've experienced walking down the street and people really appreciating your comedy, I mean, one of the great things about being a touring comedian is you get to find out if people fuck with you or not. Like, there's a lot of people, probably even on SNL, that don't know if people fuck with them a lot. They know they watch the show, but if they go do a tour. They don't know how many people are actually fans of them or fans of a show. It's like, I love the Knicks. There are guys that are playing for the Knicks. Julius Randle's playing for the Knicks. If he got a Knicks jersey on, I'm going to root for him. Once he gets traded, he's dead to me. You know, so you got to make sure that you're curating content and creating content in a way that's honest with you because then the people actually fuck with you. You know, Eddie Murphy was so goddamn funny on SNL. He hosted it while he was on it do you know what I mean? Like there's, there's a difference. So you got to make sure you're, you're curating them. Once you have that, at least for me, and, and don't get me wrong, I've spoken to like friends and they still feel like they need that cosign. They feel like they need that, that validation or whatever of the industry. But to me, to be honest with you, it completely meaningless. Like the thing I care about is, is high level content creation. I admire people who are brilliant and I want to create brilliant things to be admired as well. So it's like, I don't care if your show is on, I don't care that Euphoria is on HBO. HBO just happens to have talent, like very talented scripted execs who like really make sure that they're putting out great work and I have to give them credit for that. But like the reason why, uh, just speaking to the special, in order to to do a, like a special, like an actual streaming level special, it requires hundreds of thousands of dollars and organization and planning. And don't get me wrong, I film every single show when I'm on the road, but there's a different level and that requires money. I think that was the barrier of entry for so many comics. They're like, how the fuck am I gonna get, you know, 300, $400,000 to film all these shows at this theater and get everybody's permission slips and do all the things you actually need to do. And my thinking is this might be the way where where they can do that. And this hopefully will be the way that I can do it. Ultimately, the people decide, but this, this hopefully will be a new way where we can match the production and do it ourselves.
1: We'll be back after a quick break with more from Andrew Schultz. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How's your social battery right now? Full. Drained, maybe at half life? It's easy to spread ourselves too thin, especially with spring right around the corner. What's the right amount of socializing for you? How do you recharge? Do you thrive around lots of people or do you think you need more alone time? Therapy can give you the self awareness to build a social life that works for you and that doesn't leave you drained. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient. Flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. You can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Go to BetterHelp.com/honestly today to get ten percent off your first month. That's BetterHelp. B-e-t-t-e-r-H-e-l-p.com/honestly. I don't know about you, but I'm always searching. Searching for new restaurants in my neighborhood, searching for better jeans, searching for better hypoallergenic detergents. Okay, that last one might just be me. But I search everywhere, on Google, Instagram, Twitter, Resi, all of it. But when you're hiring for your business, as I have learned, the best way to search is to not search at all. Don't search, match. Match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform. Ditch the busy work and the endless scrolling, and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. A recent survey showed that 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. Indeed's matching engine constantly learns from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash honestly. Just go to indeed.com slash honestly right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash honestly. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Let's, Let's talk about the state of comedy and how it fits into what's going on in the culture. Sure. You know, the censoriousness, the cancel culture, whatever you want to call it. It's everywhere we look. It's on campus, obviously. It's in newspapers, obviously. Press more broadly. And it's been a huge thing in comedy. There's a zillion examples we could each think of. You know, Shane Gillis fired within hours of being announced that he was an SNL cast member. You know, the way that activists online and the media world tried to recast Chappelle as kind of an evil bigot. You know, and people like as, you know, wide ranging as Jerry Seinfeld, Chris Rock, Pete Davidson, Bill Maher, all of them have said they will not perform on college campuses. Now, I'm someone that like observes the comedy world. You're an actual yeah. comedian. How bad is it? And has it gotten worse?
0: I mean, this is the best time to be a comic. Like the the greatest comics come from times of controversy. They come from times of censorship, like any comic you remember throughout history is a comic that was like, essentially through jokes fighting back against ideas that weren't allowed, right? The Lenny Bruce's, the Pryors, the Carlins, right? The Chris Rocks. Like when you can say anything, comedy gets very like abstract and goofy. It's not really my favorite type of comedy, but it gets kind of like silly, right? Like a you know like a like a Seinfeld kind of pops up at a time like that. Like why? What's the deal with the pillow? It's like who gives a fuck. You know what I mean? Like, I don't care. Like, kid, listen, there is crazy wild people at colleges, but like there's also parties every single weekend that we see on Instagram where kids are getting absolutely obliterated drunk and doing the exact same things in college that we did. And those people come out to shows, and I'm sure they have a great fucking time and they don't like the censoriousness. Like you go on TikTok, you see how wild these fucking kids are. They don't really care.
1: But I guess I guess to to just put a finer point on it. On the one hand, you're saying the censoriousness is real. I love it.
0: I lived in Miami, Barry. I lived in Miami during the pandemic for four months. I couldn't write a single joke because life was amazing. I didn't have anything to complain about. It was a culture of people who enjoyed their family. They enjoyed food. They enjoyed going out. They just enjoyed life. And I had nothing to complain about. I had nothing to push back on. I need the outrage. I'm not going to sit here and go, oh, this outrage has got to stop. I need it. So I have something to write about. So I have something to push back about. So I have something to be antagonistic about. So I have something to poke. Do you think it
1: matters that comedians have license to joke about vulgar, painful, offensive subjects in public? Like what, what function does it serve?
0: I don't like to get into the, um, like, uh, you know, we're healing the world with our jokes about rape or whatever the fuck that argument is. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Comic, comics are like, this is, this is how I'm processing these moments. It's like, no, you thought of a really funny thing that had to do with this horribly tragic event, and then you put it together. And we've all done that as comics. The cleanest comic and the dirtiest comic, we've all just made these connections and made the funny jokes because we like making people laugh. That's really what it is.
1: Maybe, let me let me ask it in a more personal way, right? It is not unique that a network or a streamer would want a comedian to stay in certain lanes, right? SNL, you can't cuss, ask Jenny Slate. Johnny Carson, you know, never played blue, et cetera, et et cetera, et cetera. And yet, you know, and I imagine it was a similar thing with you. Cut out these five jokes. We'd love to run it, we think it'll be more successful. But you're basically saying, no, these forbidden jokes, these jokes about whatever, Michael Jackson and abortion, as you mentioned, are so important that I'm willing to, you know, spend a lot of money to buy back the special. I'm not asking you to get like super esoteric. I just wanna understand what the value is that you're living out here.
0: I worked really hard on them and it takes me months if not years to like really craft and put together a joke and I'm like really proud of that. And these jokes play a part in this greater piece. you know, like, When I put together a special, like, I don't want it to just be like, okay, here's a list of, you know, 30 fucking jokes or whatever like that. I want this thing to have an arc, and I want you to kind of, like, learn a little bit about me. And then right when you think you know about me, that gets taken away. And I want it to almost have a similar arc to, like, a film. Like that's kind of what I look at as, as a special. So, and I don't even want you to notice that that's happening. I want you just watching. You're like, Oh, this is a wild standup show. I don't even realize that I'm learning about this guy, or I'm kind of getting a full understanding of who he is as a person. And he's making me feel uncomfortable. And then when he makes me feel uncomfortable, I start to laugh. So the next time I feel uncomfortable, I'm like, oh, here comes the fun part. Like I want to play with emotion and I want to play with your feelings. But it, at the end of the day, it's selfish. It's like, I think this is the best version of the work. And I want it to go out here. And I'm just willing to gamble that people will support the uncensored version of it. And that's just at the end of the day, what it comes down to. Like I could be wrong and people don't, or I could be really right. And then this is another way that I can put out stuff and other people can put out stuff the exact way that we want to do it. And the reason why I have an ego about it is because I'm on stage every night. All these execs never been on stage. So you can't tell me something is not funny when I'm performing in front of the most diverse crowds in comedy, by the way, there's nobody has a crowd more diverse than my crowd in comedy, and I mean that like culturally, racially, religiously, and like politically, and and everybody is there for that one reason to laugh at this fucked up shit, to laugh at themselves and each other, and we've all agreed to do it when we enter the room. When we leave the room, you go to your job, you go, okay, that's not that funny, but when you're in that room, everyone gets these fucking jokes. And it's a beautiful thing. And I'm not going to mess that up. And I'm not going to water it down because some execs say, ah, it's okay to make fun of Somalis, but not okay to make fun of abortion. <laughs> Why not? Everybody's getting it. Is that actually what they said? No, no. But they're, they, I mean, they, they had some stuff about punching down, which is just such a funny, it's like, there's so much like baked in racism in that, which is so funny. Like, and I'm sure other people have spoken about this, but like you have to believe someone is lower for that to even work. Do you know what I mean? It's just conceptually, it's kind of funny to even come out of your mouth. You know, we shouldn't punch on those people down there. And it's like, well, why wh- why are they down there? What is it? <laughs> why have you ascribed them that position?
1: Okay. The special that put you on my radar was the Netflix special, December ah, yes. 2020, right? And it was a lot about COVID restrictions. You were calling out whether or not they were justified. And this was just six months or so into the pandemic at a time when it was like Fauci is God. We trust everything the CDC says. We can never question whether or not babies need to be in masks. But your (laughs) objections were like, they were prescient. You know, you said, did these precautions really protect us from getting the virus? Probably not. We don't know the long-term impact of the lung flu lockdown. I mean, sure, it would have decreased deaths today, but the economic effects alone could cause far more deaths due to poverty, suicide, or your girl forcing you to watch Selling Sunset, which I tried for one episode. So now we know, right? We know that those lockdowns did harm us in ways that were totally unexpected beyond just melting our brains from streaming Selling Sunset in Bridgerton. Yeah. And But to me, the, the bigger point here is, you know, why, do com- why are comics able to play the role of like our cultural or early warning system?
0: Because uh, everything's more digestible with humor. Like, I think it was Oscar Wilde that said, like, if you want to sell, tell someone the truth, make them laugh. If not, they'll kill you. And uh, I think, uh, right? And it's just like, it's it's just easier to say these things in a funny way. And uh, it's also not like, this is how you must think. This is how you must feel. Like, a lot of people don't know this about that special, but, like, we color-coded the jokes red and blue. So it would be huh. even. And I don't think I've ever spoken about this, but like, cause I knew already what the the media was going to do. And I knew already how people were going to react. So I was just like, I'm really curious if we have an actually even special in terms of jokes. I mean, the amount of fucking research we did to just really kind of like dial in and make sure both sizes were kind of heard, but also deliver what we thought was the truth. And I thought that was kind of missing in that period. Like I don't necessarily think comedy has to be the truth. This Peace was about truth because I thought we were so far apart on what that was. But stand-up, I think, is just only funny. Like just say the funniest thing. But we work so hard and still to see people like grab onto stupid fucking things and like try to try to make me radioactive. And it's like, that's that's very interesting. That even in an even piece, a evenly split piece, they still find a way to make you radioactive and you're a bigot, and we don't have to fucking talk to this guy at all.
1: You know you want more of Andrew Schultz, so one more break, and then we'll be back to Ask Andrew Some Quick Questions. I don't know about you, but I'm always searching. Searching for new restaurants in my neighborhood, searching for better clothes, searching for better clogs. Okay, that last one might just be me. But I search everywhere, on Google, Instagram, Twitter, Rezzy, you name it. But when you're hiring for your business, the best way to search is not to search at all. Don't search, match. Match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform. Ditch the busy work and the endless scrolling and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. A recent survey showed that 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. Indeed's matching engine constantly learns from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash honestly. Just go to Indeed.com slash honestly right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash honestly. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. At LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void work prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. You ready for some quick questions? Hit me. When was the first time, as far as you remember, that you made someone really laugh?
0: I remember the first time I saw my dad laugh uncontrollably. And it wasn't to me, but we were listening to Eddie Murphy's Delirious on a cassette tape. And that made me a comedian that day, even though I didn't realize it. But I was like, I want to make my dad laugh like that. How old were you? I forget the exact age, but I remember distinctly where we were sitting on a bed and we are listening to this tape and he was doing a joke about what if Ralph Cramden was gay and he was acting out Ralph Cramden. I didn't even know who Ralph Cramden was. I had no clue. I was so young. I didn't know know anybody. And my dad is fucking cackling and talking about what if Mr. T was gay and oh my God. And my dad was dying. And I was like, I got to make my dad laugh like that. And that's where it started. It was that day. That that day probably changed the rest of my life. So that's the first time I remember my dad laughing that hard.
1: Who were your Eddie Murphys? Who were the first people that really made you laugh? Either comedians or people you knew?
0: Oh, Oh, that's interesting before I knew standups, I mean, Eddie Murphy obviously cracked me the fuck up. Like I have the list of standups who are profound, but like the people in my life, there's a kid named, uh, this kid named Trey. And he was just funny, dude. He he was just, he had, it was a funny, there was another guy, I forget his name. He worked at a pizza place with me. And I was a kid, I was probably like 12 years old or something like that in the summers I work at this pizza place. And he just had a, a great like voice and tonation to his voice there was another guy, these were like friends, older brothers. And they would like use curse words well, or like, uh, you know, tell stories in a funny, interesting way. And I was just kind of like organizing the world and going, oh, why do people pay so much, such close attention to them when they talk? Why do I laugh so much when he says fuck in that way? And those are those guys. And then like, obviously stand up, like, you know, Chris Rock was profound. Like I saw a guy who's taken almost like devil's advocate point of view and like making it funny and making it like, Understandable and logical and seemingly true. And I was like, oh my God, there's someone who like thinks the way I think. And, uh, you know, so, th- I mean, that made me go, okay, it's okay to think like that. And then, I mean, the funniest thing I've ever laughed at was probably the Kings of Comedy, like Bernie Mac set specifically. And like, that was just the funniest. I, mean, I remember being in a movie theater on 11th Street and 3rd Avenue with three of my friends. I think it was Evan, Laurent, and Jamil, And we're sitting down. And we are like pushing each other, laughing, dying. He's telling these jokes. And I didn't know that people wrote jokes back then because he was so conversational. So I was like, I got to learn how to be this funny just in a conversation. Like it just set the bar so high. So yeah, I think those were the moments.
1: Were you like the class clown? What was your role among your friends back
0: then? Yeah, yeah. I, w- I would never call myself that, but I would I would always like cracking uh, the class up and making my friends feel uncomfortable. And, and, and I think in a weird way, it was like, that was the thing that would connect us. You know, like I grew up here in a city, you know, you go to public school, you're you're connecting with all these different people, right? Who like a lot of times didn't grow up with each other. So I think a lot of us, it was like, you know, like I remember I asked my my Dominican friend Carlos, who's a cop now in the city, and I remember asking him if if he wanted to sleep over. I you know, you always want to sleep over. And he had to explain to his his mom that that white people have sleepovers that, that I wasn't trying to fuck them. Like his mom thought that I was trying to fuck him, and he didn't get, he was like, no, no, mom, it's just white people. They'll just like sleep over. Like, so you don't have to go home. And then, and then, and then the, like her logic was quite interesting too, is she was like, well, why don't you just come sleep here? And then you guys can go hang out again in the morning. Like you live five blocks away. And then you can sleep in your own bed and not the floor. And then, like, hearing her logic, I was like, yo, sleepovers yeah. are kind of dumb, dude. Like, why do we even do these sleepovers? <laughs> <laughs> so I think it was just our way of, like, connecting. Is like we all made each other laugh and roasted the fuck out of each other. And everybody had a different background and everybody had, like, a different story. And because it was love, it was all good. Now, if somebody from outside the crew roasted us, then, you know, it w- it might be a problem. You know what I mean? Like, you know, like we, we could make fun of each other. Like, you know, we had a kid who I think was half retarded and, and, and throughout the whole high school. And we roasted the shit out of this dude, man. But nobody else was allowed to roast him. But we, I mean, this kid, it was wild, bro. This kid was wild, man. I don't even want to say his name because I don't know what, where he's at right now. But like the teacher wouldn't, wouldn't know if you turn the light off that he would just run out the class, but he wouldn't like, He wouldn't move, he wouldn't move a table or anything. Like wherever he was, whatever was in front of him, he would just run into it until he was out (laughs) of the class. (laughs) So yeah, like, but that was our half (laughs) retarded. Do you
1: feel like, do you feel like there are some subjects that you just can't joke about?
0: I wouldn't joke about retarded people. Like for me personally, like that, that would be too much, but half retarded people, yeah. (laughs)
1: Andrew what did it feel like the first time you actually got paid for making people laugh and do you remember when that
0: was oh yeah that shit was fire I remember the first time I got booked not even got made money I got booked because someone thought I was funny that was the most profound part like how old were you where were you but I don't know maybe like maybe 23 24 25 or something like that like I remember someone just going, Hey, you're funny. Do you want to come do my show? And it was a shitty show that was like in Brooklyn, but it was the first time somebody like validated me for being funny. And, um, that felt awesome. I don't remember the first time I made money. I remember the first time I made good money doing stand-up. and it felt like the most money in the world. I remember I, I made $12,000 doing uh, a weekend or like, or maybe two shows or something like that at Gotham comedy club. And, I I It felt like someone handed me a check for like $12 million.
1: We live in a world where some people think that the identity of a person should matter when they're telling a joke or writing a novel. What do you say to that?
0: Yeah, I identify as a comedian. So that's very important. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? So you should know I'm joking. and uh, And yeah, and honestly, I don't even think they mean that. I just don't think they know exactly what they mean. I mean, one scenario could be, you know, can a white person
1: ever tell a joke with the N word in it and have it be funny?
0: I mean, yeah. Like uh, there are comics who have done it. I don't, I don't say the N word, but that's also, I grew up with a lot of black people. So like, I know kind of what they've told me, how that makes them feel, et cetera. I just never really said it, but I'm sure there are white comics who have said it and maybe said it in a way instead of joke that's funny enough and made black people like, yo, that's funny. That joke makes me laugh. That's just me personally. I don't do it, but I'm, I defend jokes always. Like if the joke is funny, you are good. I'm on the side of jokes. So just make the shit funny. You got to care enough about it to make it funny. And the other thing is that like jokes aren't funny the first time. Jokes take time to work it out. So you're going to be bombing with the N word. That's, that's. (laughs) <laughs> that's, hey bro that's, that's brutal
1: brain. I guess what I mean is like only Margaret Cho can tell jokes about her parents and insane Asian you know American stereotypes of parents and I'm dying when I look back at her old sets or you know Larry David making Jewish jokes like is there something about being the thing and being able to make fun of the thing that's the unique
0: superpower no I don't think so I mean like I have a lot of Asians that come to my shows they're hoping I make fun of them like I had a good joke about fucking Squid Game, that uh, I said I was like I said it's racist. I was like Squid Game's racist, and they're like why? And I'm like half the Asians die because they can't stop at a red light. <laughs> I thought that that was a very funny take on on an Asian show and an Asian stereotype, and connecting those things. And Asians fucking laughed at it because they know it was it was good and it's in good fun, and they also know it's not true. Like. I think, I think that people get upset and white people get upset too. Like if you make a joke about white people and it's just some like hacky thing about white people, then it's just like, all right, cool. You did no research. You didn't ask. You didn't try to find anything nuanced. You didn't, you didn't look at all into that specific type of white person you're talking about.
1: Well, the whole fun thing about being roasted is, like, the specificity of it. Yes. So, like, when Tim Dillon made fun of me and he's, like, Barry Weiss is trying to impregnate herself with a Hezbollah rocket, I was, like, that is good. Like, you know, it's, like, great because it was so specific. It wasn't, like, oh, like, white 30-something. She likes murder shows. Like, that's yeah. just not funny.
0: Yeah. You know, Karen. Like, just even saying the word Karen is just so fucking hacky now. It's just, like... Okay, like what else? Like there's a more specific way that you can make fun of groups and I think the more specific you get, the more those groups appreciate it. And and genu- genuinely people like it. Like if you can find something specific about them culturally and tease them about it, they enjoy it. It's it's really nice. It's eye-opening for them. So, I don't think people are against jokes. I think they're against like the same hacky shit that they've maybe dealt with their whole life. I think that's kind of what they're trying to say. With, without even realizing it. Like for example, like the speed limit is is 65, right? Because most cars can go 65 and everything's okay, right? And it's too difficult to go, the speed limit is 65 for Hondas, the speed limit is 105 for Lamborghinis, the speed limit is 95 for Ferrari, you know what I mean? Like you can't move it around, so you just make a blanket statement that if everybody abides by this, nobody's feelings get hurt. But if you had more nuance and specificity, they would probably be okay with you breaking the rules.
1: Are there any funny woke comedians or to put it another way, are there any funny right-wing comedians? I guess what I mean by that is, you know, is there something inherently unfunny about trying to sort of preach or push a particular political message?
0: Yeah, Does that? I think so. Yeah, it's like you lose your superpower by saying what you are. Like I don't want you ever to know where the joke is coming from. I don't want you to know where I'm going. I want you off guard cuz I'm loyal to the jokes. Like I'm not using stand up as like this way of shaping the world. I fucking hate when comics do that. It's like you just want people to clap at your shit. Stop acting like you're an activist. Go make some change if you're actually an activist. The way to make change is not performing for 20 people in a basement. You know what I'm saying? Like you're doing that for you, right? Like so I, I think it's very hard to be an, like a uh, – I think it's very hard to be like a very politicized person and funny because you end up just kind of saying the true thing. And what's funny is what's wrong. That I think that's the thing a lot of us – is hard for people to realize. Like the what's wrong is funny and funny is emotional. It's not logical. Like we logically know the right way to treat people and what you should and shouldn't call somebody. But it's funny – when your emotions tell you something wrong, okay? When you see a fat person fall and you laugh, that's not right, but it's funny. Every time, it's funny. I saw a fat person hit a curb and roll off a city bike, and I had to stop my car, I was laughing so hard. Hit the curb and fell into the front of it and then just rolled off, and I was just fucking dying laughing. That's knee jerk, God made me that way. That's God. Take that up with God. That's not on me. Is Trump funny? Hilarious. Objectively, hilarious. I mean, like, I hate when people are like, he's not even funny. No, 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 no. Hilarious. (laughs) Like, funnier than most comedians. Like, says knee-jerk things that are funnier than most comedians. You called all women pigs. No, just Rosie O'Donnell. Hilarious Listen There are people That are just funny And you just can't help it You know who else is funny Bill Clinton Funny Knows how to tell a story Knows how to weave Something witty Into that story Guys got it But but the, the People are just trying To bag on Trump Because they don't like him So they're trying to Take everything else Away from him It's like when like People don't like A basketball player Because he's on the Opposing team They're like He's not that good It's like No he's really good LeBron is really good You just don't like him but he's really good at basketball.
1: Are there any other politicians in America right now that you think are funny?
0: I mean, you gotta be such a loser to be a politician. It's like hard to be funny as well. Like just what a fucking abject loser to go, I want to decide what people should do. Like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, what a fucking loser. (laughs) You know, so like, it's hard to be like that much of a loser and also funny. But uh, maybe there's a few of them that are like, I actually want to help or, you know, I think I can make positive change or whatever delusional shit.
1: When a comedian gets rich, as I assume you already are or are getting. I was. Did I was, Barry. Well, now now you're in the poorhouse. You're getting back to being rich. When comedians get rich, do they get less funny?
0: I think, I think when they move to Miami, they do.
1: When they get the good life, do they get less funny?
0: Yeah, I think what happens with – well, I, it's never like a direct correlation, right? It's like there's always – it's always one derivative away. It's like you remove yourself from the source of your humor because the source of your humor oftentimes is like inconvenience. It's and, friction. Yeah, that's the best way to put it. It's friction and – when you get money, your life becomes more frictionless because you can afford to do that. You have a personal assistant that's going to deal with the friction, right? You move to a new city, this less friction. I moved myself and all my team, the guys who I do the podcast with and the guys who are producing this thing, back to New York for friction. I came back here for misery. <laughs> Because, you know what I mean? And, and I don't subscribe to that trope like, you have to be like a depressed, sad person to be a comic. It's like, shut the fuck up with that shit. Like, no. Uh, there are sad people that are also funny, and there are people who are not sad. They're funny. There are plenty of sad people who fucking stink at comedy. They're just sad. But I moved us back here because I needed that motivation. I needed that friction. I needed to feel. I needed the angst. I needed the thing to push back on because this is what I love doing.
1: Speaking of great New York comedians, what do you make of what happened to Louis C.K.?
0: I think that uh, it's a real shame. I think Louis is like a perfect lesson, which which is like, if you didn't do anything wrong, never apologize, ever. Because when you apologize, you apologize for what people think you did, not what you actually did. So if the narrative is out there that he's fucking locking women in a hotel and then People hear, oh, did you hear Louis apologize? They believe he said, I'm sorry for this thing that didn't happen, but in their mind, it did. So, yeah, I mean, if I was him, I'm just going nonstop, like, you know, no, this is bullshit. This is not the case at all. I didn't have any power over these women. I'm into some fucking weirdo shit, and it is what it is. You know, you guys are probably into some weirdo shit too. Imagine the whole fucking whole world knew about it, you know? So that's what I would do. But, um, But look, I mean, Louis just won an Emmy, so maybe he's right. Maybe it's apologize and take some time off, you know, but that's just not how I would have done it if I know I'm innocent.
1: Who are the best comedians in the business right now as far as you're
0: concerned? I mean, the best stand-up comics alive right now, Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, Dave Chappelle, William Burr, Sir William Burr. (laughs) uh, I mean, yeah, that are alive, we're talking about. I mean, the best ever. Who's the best ever? Patrice O'Neal is the best ever. He's the best ever. The best I've ever seen done it. And this is my personal opinion. It's a style of comedy I like. It's blunt. It is a little devil's advocate-y, but there's emotion connected with every bit. It's like you feel that he cares about this thing. And uh, it's not too, um, like, absurdist or, like, cartoonish. I'm 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 from New York, so I, we don't really like the cartoonish stuff. We like direct. Tell me how you feel. Don't don't create a fucking a landscape of how to how you feel. Just tell me directly how you feel. And um, he just had that. He's a he's a Boston guy, but uh,
1: where do you like to go for comedy?
0: The comedy clubs I really love performing at are are the Comedy Cellar and New York Comedy Club in in the city, and. Uh, they're, I mean, they're just fantastic. Obviously, now that comedy is so popular, you're going to get a lot of tourists that are just like kind of going, I want to go to a comedy club in the same way they want to go see the Empire State Building. But generally speaking, the people that come out to these clubs, they uh, they know that, hey, we're here for comedy and we're here for these jokes. You know, that being said, there are all these people who can be offended by things and you have the right to be offended by things. You just don't have the right to interrupt the show.
1: All right, Andrew. Last question. A few days ago, Netflix put out a special, which is basically a 40-minute speech that Dave Chappelle gave at Duke Ellington High School in Washington, Mm D.C. And the theater was about to be renamed in his honor, the theater at the high school. And he turned it down. And instead, he asked for it to be renamed the Theater for Artistic Freedom and Expression. And in the speech, Chappelle says, the more you say I can't say something, the more urgent it is for me to say it. It has nothing to do with what you're saying I can't say. It has everything to do with my right and my freedom of artistic expression. How do you think about that?
0: Um my artistic expression, (laughs) wow! you know, like that's not something a comic is going to say at the back table of the cellar. Like I have an idea. This is about artistic expression. Like like, we would kill Chappelle if he said that shit at the back table of the cellar. Are you kidding me? I understand what he's, what he's doing though. Like strategically it's brilliant. Like that's how you really piss off the people that, that you are upset at. And, um, so that was really nice it, it nice uh, but like I don't think any comic is doing this shit for like artistic expression or whatever that kind of shit is like we just want to create the things that we want to create and 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 I guess that is artistic expression, but like we're not going today I'm gonna express my uh, myself artistically. We're just going, hey, I write these jokes. It just so happened culture changed and now some of these jokes are not allowed to be said. I wasn't fighting for artistic expression when everybody was allowing me to say my shit. I'm just fighting for it now that I can't say my shit. I think we all believe in freedom of speech here in America. We all want to say what we want to say. Yes, of course, we love that. That's great that it's in play and we can repeat it. It's great that I get to put my comedy special out. But What I really want to do is put my comedy special out the way I want to put it out. It's not I'm doing this uh, for freedom of expression and creativity. I'm doing this for me. And I don't think that comics should be censored. But to act like I'm doing this selflessly is, is is not fair. And that's not honest. Like, I created a piece that I'm really proud of, and a lot of people saw it on the road, and I think more people would like it if they get to watch it. And I hope that they appreciate that fucking honesty, and I hope that they support that. Simple as that.
1: Andrew Schultz doing it for himself, betting on himself. Kind of nothing more American than that. Andrew, thank you so much for doing this, everyone. This is Andrew Schultz, and his new special is called Infamous. It comes out July 17th, but you can pre-order it now on theandrewschultz.com. I'm curious who owns andrewschultz.com and how much they're holding it hostage for, but we'll talk about that another time. Andrew, thanks so much.
0: Yeah, Yo, thank you, Barry.
1: My thanks to Andrew Schultz for coming on the show. To pre-order his new special called Infamous – Visit his website, theandrewschultz.com. That's spelled S-C-H-U-L-Z. It'll be available to watch on July 17th. Thanks to you for listening. I know this episode is a little different than what we usually do, and we want to know if you liked it. So tell us either way at tips at honestlypod.com. I love talking to comedians, and I love knowing who you want to hear from. So send suggestions for your favorite comics our way. Last thing... If you want to support our work, become a subscriber today at commonsense.news. See you next time.
0: 18- plus.